Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Thank you for standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the Mullen Group Limited first quarter earnings conference call and webcast. As a reminder, all participants are in listen only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to Murray K. Mullen, Chairman, CEO, and President. Please go ahead. Morning, all, and welcome to Mullen Group's quarterly conference call. So before I commence today's review, I'll remind everyone that our presentation contains forward-looking statements that are based upon current expectations and are subject to a number of uncertainties and risks and actual results may differ materially. Now, further information identifying the risks, uncertainties, and assumptions can be found in the disclosure documents, which are filed on CDAR and at www.mullen-group.com. So with me this morning, and we're all social distancing, as near everyone else in the line is, I'm, I'm assuming, um, I have our entire executive team, which is CFO, uh, Stefan Clark, Richard Maloney, Senior VP, Joanna Scott, who's our Corporate Secretary and VP of Corporate Services, and Carson Erlacher, who's our Corporate Controller. So thanks for joining us and participating in our quarterly financial and business update call today. Uh, I'll be reviewing the financial results uh, for the first quarter, or we will be, for the first quarter of 2021. We'll provide an update on the two acquisitions that we've recently announced thus far in 2021, and discuss our view of what the freight environment looks like post-COVID. Now, we all must be realistic, and I caution everyone, until this virus is brought under control, uh, nothing is really certain. But, and this is the really good news, there is ample evidence to suggest that once the impact of COVID is minimized, the economy will recover quickly and show very strong growth, the active ingredient for freight demand and improved margins. Now, we only need to look to the U.S. for guidance. That economy is on fire, and freight demand has never been better. So later, the, uh, shortly, I'll be turning the call over to Stefan to highlight our first quarter results and overall operating performance. But before I do, let me recap what I see as the emerging trends and significant events that are impacting the supply chain, logistics, and our business. Now, once again, the consumer reigns supreme. Uh, the evidence is compelling, and it's widespread. Yes, COVID has impacted all of our lives. It is a disaster from a healthcare perspective, but nothing seems to stop the insatiable appetite of the consumer. So even though the in-store visit has been disrupted, the ease with which you can buy online has transformed the shopping experience. E-commerce has revolutionized how consumers spend. But this has also changed the supply chain dramatically. Today, consumer goods are shipped direct to the home, from warehouses or fulfillment centers, usually in packages and boxes. So if you're in the cardboard industry, it's booming, but the trees are crying out in distress. We see more deliveries, smaller packages, and lots of boxes. 
that all need recycling. To the consumer, this is now the safest, most convenient, and cheapest way to shop. Besides, if you don't like it, send it back. This emerging trend has not only has not necessarily changed the truckload industry, however, um, but and it also has kept freight demand, especially the van and container shipment industry, strong. Where the change has occurred is in the final mile component of the delivery process. As I mentioned, more and smaller packages delivered to the home as compared to pallets delivered to the storefront. In essence, a significant amount of consumer freight has been diverted from the retail malls to warehouses. And this trend is the primary reason our LTL business has been outperforming. Second trend I see is the supply chain is very tight. It's driven by a combination of strong consumer demand I just spoke about and supply chain disruptions. There's a reduction in manufacturing capabilities due to workplace issues, additional sickness and new safety protocols, etc. As a result, bottlenecks are now appearing regularly, and that's placing tremendous strain on the age-old concept of just-in-time management. In fact, I personally believe business must be prepared to do pivot towards just-in-case inventory management, and this implies higher costs, forward planning, and lots of warehousing. Number three, Canada is not seeing, as of yet at least, a return to capital investment. Now, there's new the new major projects are not being sanctioned and capital goods continue to lag. And we know it's not because of interest rates or the cost of capital. This is the primary reason the flat deck and specialized hauling component of uh, the Canadian trucking industry continues to underperform. Number four, there's what I'd call a mega trend occurring in the logistics space and it's called consolidation. Mergers and acquisitions are occurring quite regularly in this space and I'm happy to report we have found two acquisitions of size to start 2021. Both the Banster Group, which is based in British Columbia, and Apps Transport Group uh, out of Ontario, are brand name companies. They provide our company with new growth platforms and most importantly, the opportunity to enhance profitability once we capture the synergies. In fact, synergies are the most critical component we look for in, acquis in our acquisition strategy. Otherwise, acquisitions are too expensive. Let me give you a perfect example. Several years ago, we acquired another platform company. It's called the Guardwine Group, based in Manitoba. In five short years, under our ownership, the Guardwine management team, with our capital support, has increased revenue by, revenues by approximately 50% and doubled operating profitability. So we know the plan. The fifth trend I see is technology. Uh, this is nothing new. Everyone knows about it, but boy, is it changing and changing fast. Here at our group, we're on the leading edge when it comes to inventory management systems, data management, and security. We're investing heavily in handheld technology. We're bringing real-time data tracking to every customer, and we are preparing for the digital revolution. We're accelerating our investment in energy-efficient delivery vehicles to ensure we minimize our environmental footprint. Now, this is a transition that will take some time, but it is irreversible, so we've already started the journey. And six, and lastly, there's now ample evidence to suggest a recovery in Canada's oil and natural gas industry is within reach. Commodity prices are rising. Additional takeaway pipeline capacity is getting closer to reality. The industry is changing its focus to meet new standards. The balance sheets have been restored after nearly collapsing last year. So all in all, we believe it's only a matter of time before the service industry will see much better days. I'm not quite ready to commit a bunch of capital to this segment yet, but we are definitely more constructive than we have been for quite some time. 
So on each of these emerging trends, I'm delighted to report our organization as well positioned. We've always been a leading edge company, and this is not about to change. We're always looking forward. Now, a quick comment on the quarter results before I turn it over to Sudman. Uh, LTL was solid and up year over year. Logistics and warehousing was in line with last year, but as of yet, no growth as the Canadian economy continues to be held back by government restrictions and a lack of capital, capital goods investment. In other words, the segment results were decent, just not where I'd like to see them. And specialized industrial was down noticeably, primarily due to reduction in pipeline construction activity, which was really slow due to government-mandated closures of the two major projects, the Trans Mountain Crude Oil Pipeline and Coastal Gas to the new Kitimat LNG plant, and slower oil production work where pricing remains at distress levels. So overall, our results were in line with our expectations and within our prior guidance to shareholders, where we cautioned that COVID would be the deciding factor. So, Sussman, I'll now turn it over to you. You're up, and uh, you'll give a, a little more detail on the quarterly results. It's all you. Thank you, Murray, and uh, good morning, fellow shareholders. I'll get a little bit more granular. However, our interim report contains the details that fully explain our performance. As such, I will only provide some high-level commentary. For the quarter, consolidated revenue declined by approximately 9% or down to $290.5 million as compared to $318.2 million in 2020. The effects of COVID-19 continue to negatively impact the economy, and it is still below pre-pandemic levels as efforts to contain the virus continue to constrain the economy. Revenue in the consumer-driven less-than-truckload segment rose by 6.9%, in part due to the acquisition of Pacific Coast Express. Adjusting for this acquisition and for fluctuations in fuel surcharge revenue, revenue grew by 2.1% due to this over underlying strength of consumer spending. Revenue in the logistics and warehousing and specialized in industrial services segments declined by 5.1 and 28.8% year over year respectively. This should come as no surprise to anyone given the current situation as the resurgence of the virus has prompted governments to reimpose containment measures and the start-stop nature will likely haunt us for the foreseeable future. Additionally, despite higher oil prices, our customers remain cautious and the rate count remains well below pre-pandemic levels. I know many analysts work on sequential type models, so a quick recap. On a sequential basis, consolidated revenue decreased by $7.2 million, largely due to the seasonal effects of the post-holiday and a poor February that was mired by bad weather and COVID shutdowns. March, however, performed on par with prior year, but it should be noted that March of 2020 was impacted by the initial effects of COVID, especially within our S&I segment. The LTL segment was up 3.7% on a sequential basis, a little bit better than historic trend. The uh, logistics and warehousing segment was down by 5.7, which was better than the 2020 sequential reduction of 7.8, but more or less on par with historic seasonal trends as it was affected in 2020 by COVID-19. This SNI segment that typically shows improved results on a historic basis saw a sequential decline of 6.5%. Simply put, despite better commodity prices, our customers remain cautious and COVID-19 impacted construction activity for premium pipelines. As for profitability, operating income before depreciation and amortization, commonly referred to as EBITDA, increased by 1.9 million or 4.2% to 47.1%. 
segment EBITDA increased in the LTL segment by $6 million. However, in the logistics and warehousing and the specialized industrial services segment, uh, those segments declined by half a million dollars and $2.4 million respectively. Of course, this number comes in part as a result of queues. The underlying EBITDA number adjusted for queues was $41.1 million compared to $45.2 million in 2020. Down an absolute dollar basis, but without any benefit of queues, our operating margin was virtually flat at 14.1% from 14.2% in 2020, primarily due to cost control measures, especially within the SNI segment. This margin management was achieved despite the rise in diesel fuel prices that rose nationally by 22% in the last quarter, year over year. Fuel surcharge revenue always lags as it is set after the drop or rise in diesel prices, and we have a small win on the way down like we did in, in for the most of 2020, and a small loss on the way up. My hope is that we will be able to mitigate higher diesel fuel prices through higher fuel surcharge revenue, but also continued focus on costs and the dollar cost averaging effect of generally fixed SNA expenses over higher revenue. Of course, higher revenue is always COVID dependent, but the revenue trend uh, continues to improve. Looking at other notable items, net cash from operating activities for the period was essentially flat from prior year at $39 million. Overall, our cash bill during the quarter was $12.8 million, and we exited the quarter with $117.7 million. However, our cash balance changed materially after the quarter due to the acquisition of the Banchester Group. For the analyst community, I'll, I'll refer you to Note 17, our subsequent event, uh, events note within our financial statements, and you can see how much we paid for the Banchester Group. You would also note that the Apps Group has similar revenue, and so again, you would expect similar consideration, although we have not publicly announced uh, Apps consideration quite yet. But after these investments, or after this investment of, for the Banster Group, as well as paying our taxes, interest obligation, and dividends, um, our $150 million line of credit remains undrawn. So as of today, we're, we're still not borrowing any money. So um, lastly, a quick word on ESG. Profits and cash generation are good, but not if they come at the expense of worker safety or the environment. Last year this time, we were in the initial stages of a pandemic. And we took unprecedented steps to protect our frontline workers' lives and livelihoods by implementing new safety protocols and providing financial help well ahead of any government programs. That ethos of taking a wholesome or balanced approach is unwavering, and our first quarter safety results continued to improve. Our lost time claim ratio improved to 0.61, and our total recordable injury rate was reduced to 3.05. In short, our commitment to safety will not be compromised by profit. And on that note, I would like to personally thank our frontline workers who tirelessly deliver essential goods each and every day, ensuring our cupboards are full and our economy moves on. Lastly, for those who have not had time to review our information circular, you will note that 2020's EBITDA was up by $16.7 million or 8%, but our profit share was virtually flat and our total executive compensation was down. Simply put, we excluded cues in any of our calculations of executive compensation. We did not need government to legislate us into doing the right thing. That's good governance. So with that, Murray, I'll pass the conference back to you. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. Uh, well, that was fulsome, good disclosure. Um, folks, uh, now typically I wouldn't have much new to offer in terms of guidance or update 
because it was only eight weeks ago that I last provided some comments uh, to our shareholders and investors. You may recall, for example, that in February I completed the conference call with the following, I expect 2021 results to be slow out of the gate with a strong finish. Well, I got the first part right, and it sure seems I might get the second part right now uh, as well because we announced two pretty good-sized transactions that will ultimately drive uh, our future growth and uh, profitability. And, of course, we all need to see COVID to be stopped in its tracks for a return to full economic growth. And for my full uh, year predictions to be accurate. Now, in other words, there is hope out there, uh, but we're not quite there yet. In summary, I'm a belief that the Canadian economy will rebound post-COVID. I watch what is happening in the U.S., for example, when a successful vaccination program gets widely distributed. COVID cases fall dramatically, and the economy opens up. So we know what's in store for Canada. It's only when. The financial system is loaded with money and liquidity. There will be pent-up demands, and both of these ingredients uh, will drive the economic recovery. Now, LTL will remain our steadiest business. The consumer spend will continue, and then we have one of the best networks of any company in Canada, which is only wider and stronger with the addition of Banstra's and Apps LTL capabilities. Logistics and warehousing is poised for a robust recovery as demand uh, for freight returns. And with just a marginal increase in additional demand comes pricing leverage, the secret sauce to improve operating profitability. We are well positioned to take advantage when the opportunity is presented. And then I even see some light in our oil fields and industrial segment as the year unfolds. Pipeline construction activity remains slower than last year due to COVID shutdowns, but the work is still there. In fact, it looks like the work that we had originally planned for this year will be now pushed out into 2022, at least a good portion of it. Driving uh, or drilling activity will be stronger than last year. How couldn't it be? Uh, but it's still going to lag 2019 levels. But I suspect the difference narrows as the year unfolds, and 2022 will be better. Our strategy as it relates to the oil and natural gas industry is to make sure we are positioned to capture businesses demand increases and to invest capital where we see we can help the industry adapt to new stricter ESG commitments. For example, we've already invested in new state-of-the-art technology to clean storage tanks. Uh, these are remote gutted devices with zero tank entry required by our people. It's safer, it's efficient, and it's the future of tank cleaning. We're also investing in digitizing our world um, inventory management systems at Formula Powell. Every product will be barcoded, ensuring we can minimize inventory shrinkage. But more importantly, our customers now can, will be easy. Uh, it'll be easy for them to track what product goes down the drill hole in real time. This is the brilliance of uh, digitizing inventory with handheld technology and inventory management systems that we use at our e, uh, in our e-commerce businesses, for example, we can adapt the old paper guesswork system to real-time data. So my message to our shareholders is this as it relates to the oil and natural gas industry. It is changing, and we will adapt to capture uh, market share as best we can because it remains a big business. And if you don't believe me, look at the trade data. Energy exports reign large. Lastly, I will reiterate uh, our approach to acquisitions. Yes, acquisitions provide headline-grabbing attention and top-line revenue growth. But only strategic acquisitions create long-term value. To me, this means investing in targets that are strategic where synergies can be realized. We invest in technology to make the businesses more efficient, and then seasoned management teams can deliver bottom-line performance. 
We recently announced our intent to acquire two really good companies right here in Canada, and we will continue to look for more of these platform-type acquisitions. And then we always add the tuck-in opportunities to drive scale. And I always look to see how free cash can be generated. So thanks for joining with us today, and now let's open up the lines for a Q&A session. Operator, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. We have four questioners on the line, and the first question comes from Walter Spracklin with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, uh, hi, everyone. How are you doing? Hey, Murray. Good morning. Good morning, Walter. Ed, um, so, so I guess I'll start here with uh, with your guidance. You mentioned that you only provided guidance a few weeks, uh, uh, about eight weeks ago, but I, I guess um, you know you've got a couple acquisitions uh, in there now. Um, depending on when they're closed, and then, you know, your guidance for your 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 the revenue guidance and one third one third seems a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know if it, it still squares up as that one third one third one third, or if you're reiterating that because it it, it seems that perhaps you know, you're barring any major changes, there might be a little bit of uh, separation from that equal split. Is there any? Any color you can, you know, officially give us on, on, on where your guidance is going now, now that you've got the acquisitions under your belt and, and the first quarter behind us? Yeah, I'd say that, uh, you know, it's probably going to be skewed now because most of the acquisition uh, growth is going to come both in the specialized or in the uh, LTL segment and the logistics and warehousing. So uh, just by those themselves, the specialized side will go down because that's where the growth is at in those two segments, which is our primary focus right now. We've been articulating that for quite some time. So um, overall, both of these acquisitions, if you if you put them in totality uh, as I think the total gross on a, on a full year fiscal basis will be somewhere around 200 million uh, that we would think in 2022. Uh, and operating margins, not quite where we're at. Uh, they're, they're a little bit uh, below our standards. Uh, so it'll take us a little bit of time to move those margins up to where we want them. But, uh, you know, overall, that's, uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to be substantially below uh, where we're at, but they're a little bit below. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to, what we're going to target about. So I think we're in pretty good shape for, I think we've targeted somewhere around 1.2, 1.3 from same store sales, and then you add on top your acquisitions. So we'll be for this year 1.3 to 1.4 now, and then 1.4 and above to 1.5 for next year. I think is basically what I'm seeing at the moment. Okay. With, uh, with, with, with margins being uh, somewhat similar, I think to where we're at right now. Perfect. Uh, that's a great color. Um, second question here is is really on the demand environment, as you said, Maria. I mean, it, it seems that uh, uh, there's a there's a nice volume lift coming our way. All the rails are saying it as well. 
Um, can you talk a bit about what the risks are as you, uh, if volume comes in at or even above expectations? And, and the risks, I mean, you know, congestion, supply chain partners failing on you. Um, is that something we should consider? Is that something we should be mindful of? Or do you think you have enough control over all the moving parts that if we get some solid economic lift at or above expectations that you can drive it all to the bottom line? Um, well, I think that disruptions are not in themselves uh, drivers of efficient bottom line, uh, to be honest with you, Walter. I think that, you know, disruptions, whether it's at your factory or if, if uh, you know, if, if our trucks are delayed, we don't get as much you know, we don't get as much revenue from them, et cetera. So in essence, the supply chain disruptions that that we've seen happen in certain parts of the economy now, ship lines, as an example, uh, you know, they're not as efficient as they once were. They're sitting in port way too long now. Well, somebody's got to pay that cost. Originally, it starts off as the, as the shipping line, but then very quickly it, it goes to, well, uh, much higher shipping rates. You only have to take a look at what's happening with ocean freight rates, and they're they're they're, they're skyrocketing. Um, and conversely, I think you'll see the same thing in the in the freight distribution. In uh, here, I think there'll be some bottlenecks that'll that makes it look bottlenecks. By the way, make look demand stronger than what it really is, and that's part of what I'm talking about. We're going to have an increase in 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 demand. That's at the same time, you're not going to be as efficient. Well, that that that's kind of a contraction of supply. So, uh, you know, our job is to price it appropriately. And uh, I can tell you, my teams are fully aware that uh, we're not paying the price of inefficiency in the in the supply chain. We don't have control of the supply chain. We have control of our business and our capacity. And we will be managing that spread, and we'll be managing the costs very very aggressively. I can tell you that right now. And that's, that's really encouraging, Murray. Um, uh, that's a great answer. Uh, uh, last question here on on the Bible. I, I was surprised, given kind of your your tone last call, that seemed like you were, you know, you were you were wanting to refocus a little bit more here on acquisitions and to to zero in on that. And certainly, we've seen those two that you you've announced. I was surprised to see any buyback um, in the quarter. Given that, given that you're you're really focused on acquisitions now, can, can you talk to us about, you know, is this something now you're going to consider doing through the year, the buyback, or was that kind of early in the year and now a couple opportunities present themselves, we might see more, perhaps put the buyback on pause. Just, just curious your strategy there. Well, investing in our company is still probably the best returns that we can get for our shareholders, to be blunt with you, Walter. Acquisitions themselves are not, like I said to you, acquisitions give you top-line growth. They don't give you accretion necessarily. Uh, accretion and the real bottom line comes from doing all the right things, finding synergies, and then driving profitability uh, by making those acquisitions better. So uh, our stock price is still, uh, in our view, well below where its value is, and so we'll continue to uh, buy back stock. The higher the price goes, probably the less we'll buy. But uh, we've announced, hey, we really a year 
plus ago that we were going to put about $100 million into buying back our stock. We just happened to get uh, lucky, I guess, last year that the market panicked and some shareholders panicked, and we took massive advantage of, uh, of that, uh, doing about 50% of it of our uh, of it last year. Um, but, you know, our plan is to continue to do some share buybacks, but we'll scale it back the higher the price goes. So, so Steph indicated that you, you it, know, it doesn't. It, you know, our share buyback doesn't impact our uh, our ability to do acquisitions uh, at all. It's but you've got a quality that's undrawn. Um, would you draw it down it, to do buyback versus acquisition, or or, or no? Or we generate we generate enough free cash to to do uh, to do buybacks. Uh, the free cash that we've got funds capex and is used for. Uh, Dividends or share buyback. So, and then you got um, the, the then we got the, our operating line to do growth. Yeah, yeah, got it. I appreciate your time, Murray. As always, thank you. Have a great day. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Walter. Bye. The next question comes from Conor Gupta with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Good morning, and uh, thanks, everyone. Good morning, Conrad. Uh, How are you? I'm thanks. I'm good. Thanks, uh, Murray. Thank you so much. Um, so maybe for a second, uh, kick off with uh, with the recent acquisition that you announced, Banstra. Uh, so uh, as Stefan uh, mentioned uh, in the disclosures, I think it suggests uh, you paid a $75 million cash consideration for that. Uh, wondering if there was any uh, debt assumption in there, uh, number one. And then second, um, it seems like there's some intercompany uh, revenue there between Babine and uh, Banstra. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, and yep. what do you yep. think is the net revenue impact on the consolidation here? Um, well, you're you're right, but the company is virtually a, a debt-free company. They're a very very well-run company. So on a on a net cash basis, they're debt-free. Um, so it won't add anything on that um, from on the debt side. Um, so it's a it's a really really strong brand company in British Columbia, exceptionally well and conservatively managed over the years, uh, which is typically what we see in, in well-run family businesses. So um, from that perspective, that kind of answers that. Um, there is a little bit of intercompany because they had this, uh, um, the um, OEM or the repair facility and some of the uh, capital assets. They, they bought equipment through their dealership network there. Um, and um, individually, they would have been, I think, step maybe be up around in the high 80s, I guess. But if you consolidate, uh, some of the intercompany stuff might be kind of mid 80s or maybe low 80s, Steph. I think that's the math we yeah, came Murray, up with. Yeah. Yeah, so the Babine uh, truck dealership uh, is, in essence, the repair facility, and then they do third-party repairs and, and maintenance as well. But uh, it's about um, six to seven million dollars of intercompany revenue uh, out of, you know, what we've guided towards uh, somewhere around twenty. So it's um, it's significant, but certainly not material in the context of the greater Mullen. And so you'll add a little bit to our, and that one I'll remind everyone is going to go into our specialized segment because it really isn't a, a trucking operation so it kind of fits into that mixed bag of specialized thanks yeah that's good color uh, so if i can follow on on that banstra i think the press release also mentioned that you're expecting returns 
for each uh, of the individual segments. So similar to the LNW and SNI, were you referring to uh, margins when you said returns, or, or how should I think about the returns differently? Um, on the on the, on the basic on the bands for transportation side, you know they're 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 similar margins uh, uh, that we've got. They're an asset. They've got a lot of asset based uh, in there, so you know they're going to be very similar margins to to what we've got. Maybe not quite as high, but uh, um, but pretty darn close. So I don't expect any margin deterioration in our logistics and warehousing segment. And on the specialized industrial side, it's not quite as good a margins as we typically would see um, because there is some some equipment sale in there that doesn't uh, like any OEM that you sell. You don't make a large uh, a large percentage off of uh, off of the sale of equipment. You make uh, most of your margin on repairs, maintenance, and aftermarket sales of parts and service. So. Um, it really depends. That could fluctuate a little bit, Connor, depending on how many uh, uh, truck sales there are during the quarter. Um, and, and as I said, they, you know, the, the Babine Group is partly an OEM, OEM distributor of uh, the of, uh, uh, of the Mo, uh, Volvo Mac uh, brand, and uh, that's a quite a quite a good brand up in, in northern BC. Uh, they got a pretty strong reputation in the Panzer setting. Had a great business model up there, and they happen to be big users of the Mac and Volvo brands. So I guess now you know why they they bought the dealerships. So you know they 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 had a really good integrated whole integrated solution. I got to give that family credit for building a really strong business model. They did a good job. Right, and and that's kind of a segue into what I wanted to ask you on Babine. It's uh, what like that's an OEM that that provides some uh, MRO stuff as well. Um, like, is that a change in uh, strategy you think, or this is just one off because it came as a condition of buying the transportation from Banstra? It, it was basically a one off as a condition. It, you know, they, it was so integrated and intertwined, it was difficult to spread it out so, uh, or to to uh, to uh, uh, allocate it out and, and disassociate it. it. It's just it's really part of what the pastor group was all about. So I wouldn't say we targeted to get into the OEM business. Um, whether we stay in it or not, that, that, that has yet to be determined. Uh, but, uh, you know, we took the whole smorgasbord and then we'll, uh, we'll figure it out uh, over time. But it, for right now, it's very, very integral to the Banstra, uh total operating model. That's great. And then last one for me on the acquisition front. Uh, so I think you said in your prepared remarks that you are not uh, ready yet to commit to a lot of capital uh, in the oil and gas services business at this point. But when you do uh, invest or decide to invest, would you consider acquisitions as well as organic investments? Um, now that's going to be very interesting. I haven't quite come to that grip uh, to grips on that. I, I would. I, the, the oil and gas business is so capital intensive. I think that, I think we'd probably go more for internal growth and new capital rather than acquisitions, to be honest with you. I, I don't see that as an emerging trend in that business. So we don't want to do acquisitions, uh, you know, little buggy whips. We'll look at, at uh, investing where we think that 
uh, we can provide new value in a new way for for customers. Uh, but I don't think I don't think you'll see us do a, an old style acquisition model in the, in the oil and gas service side. I don't see that. For you know, for example, we're not going to acquire more drilling rig companies or uh, stuff like that. Not a, not a chance. Um, but the industry has to adapt and change to the new world. And with that, that means investment in capital. And so we're looking at those opportunities. And I gave you a couple highlights already of where, you know, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. This is an industry that's still going to be quite important to Canada. Uh, it's not going to be the growth engine that it once was, but it's still going to be important to the Canadian landscape. And uh, so we'll keep our eyes open. But I doubt if it's acquisitions. Uh, if it is, it's, it's it, you know, we're going to be looking at, at adding capital and then and just growing internally, I think, is our preferred way. Great. Uh, appreciate the time. Thank you. The next question comes from David Ocampo with Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, everyone. Morning, David. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, Murray, in your chairman's message, I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that you know while pipeline activity remains strong and 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 quite active, it will, it will start to wind down in 2022. Can you give us a sense on how much is expected to fall off, given you know some of the revenue from this year has been pushed off, and and perhaps the bigger question is, can you offset that with demand that you're seeing in your other businesses? Yeah, so I think what we've said is is that, you know, when we've been articulating quite some time is that first you got to build the pipeline capacity to get the takeaway capacity, and then you can add the drilling activity to, to feed that, that new takeaway capacity, which is essentially new demand. So what we think happens, David, is the pipeline activity falls off, drilling activity increases, and it should be a net zero-sum game. Um, and, you know, we thought that the drilling activity was going to be a laggard and it'll probably gain some momentum um, as that takeaway capacity comes on stream, which is probably, what, 2024 uh, when that LNG plant is finally built and then you've really got to fill the pipeline. Uh, so the pipeline will, will probably be built, it will, will definitely be built before the plant. Uh, but it's now, you know, we thought it would uh, be a pretty active year this year and then start, uh, you know, fall off next year. Um, but now it looks like it's going to be spread out over two years. But, uh, you know, by 2023, I don't think we'll have a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of business in the pipeline side. But, but by that time, you're going to have, uh, I would suspect, a pretty sharp increase in drilling activity. So net-net, it's probably keeps our specialized industrial about flat, I think is my expectation right at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's helpful and pretty good color. Yeah, and that's, you know, that, I mean, our, our, we, we were fortunate. As drilling activity came down, it's not fortunate. It's, our, it's the nature of a diversified business model is that as drilling activity came down and got crushed last year, yeah, I know, but we did well because we had this, this pipeline division that was doing exceptionally well. And then as the pipeline division does well, I suspect that drilling activity will come back. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, our, that's what diversification gives you. All right. And then just circling back here, 
on on the acquisition pipeline that you guys are seeing and i think you guys noted that you're in discussion with with several opportunities when we think about the size of those are they more tuck-ins that you're seeing in your pipeline or are they similar to the apps and banster group um look the apps banster group are brand name companies my, my view is brand name companies don't come around all the time they are like Elvis, he's in the building, but you don't see him very often. And so, but when they're there, you've got to seize the opportunity and go for them. Um, and then when, when it's a brand name company, or what I'd call a platform company that you can use and build around, you've got to make sure you can add, you can see growth or synergies. Otherwise, you're just trading dollars. You're trading capital for a return that comes in slow over a a really long period of time. So um, there will be uh, more opportunity in Canada, but they, they're spotty. The tuck-ins, they're available every, every week. And what we do is we just look at putting those tuck-ins into those 35, and then we'll have 36 companies that we've got. So uh, the tuck-ins is where you drive scale and you get your best margin expansion. Platform companies, you're buying a good company uh, from smart people, and it's a transaction. It's the building around it with uh, new growth and tuck-ins and technology and expansion that gives you the margin improvement and then makes those um, acquisitions work out well in the long run. And uh, that's why I gave you the example of GuardWine. You take a platform, and then you build around it. And you put in a really good management team, uh, invest heavily in technology, and you. But you got to add. You got to add that scale and size around it, and that's how you get your. You get a really good return on that platform company. So lots of I think tuck-ins will happen, and then we'll look for those platform ones that come around once in a while. I think the. You know we're continue to to look for those, and we'll, we'll put more capital work. But I'll be honest with all shareholders, if I don't find the right opportunity then we're not going to uh, just chase growth. We'll just harvest. And we will, because at the end of the day, I'm always looking for free cash. And then free cash, if we can't put it to work smartly, I'll give it back to shareholders. And that's either through share buyback or dividend. Right. It's, it's been a pretty active year from, for most truckers in terms of consolidation. Are you starting to see an uptick in the multiples paid for companies? Oh, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, interest rates go to zero. Liquidity is all over the place. Valuation goes up. It's no different than home prices. Have home prices gone up? Yeah. So have acquisition targets. And it's all a function of interest rates. Available capital. Okay. But that's it for me. Thanks a lot, Larry. You bet. The next question comes from Aaron McNeil with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hey, morning, guys. Good morning, Aaron. Hey. I've got a couple follow-up questions on the acquisitions. Um, on the Banstra transportation uh, acquisition, how would you characterize it in terms of sector exposure? And I guess specifically, you know, what drives the revenue? Is it consumer-driven or is it capital-driven? It's, it, that's, that's a unique business model. And as I said, they, 
because they've kind of stayed close to home, kind of in BC, they are uh, very diversified. They're kind of a mini Mullen group, if you to be honest with you. They're because they're based out of Smithers, BC. They have a uh, very strong component in the mining business in BC, which is very active. Um, so that's a good chunk of their business. Um, they are up in. Uh, um, they have a plant. They have a facility in in. Uh, in Kitimat and in Terrace and in Prince Rupert, so they're they're really tied in with uh, uh, Rio Tinto uh, on the aluminum side, which I think you could is kind of a hybrid of uh, kind of consumer and uh, and manufacturing. So the, the you know the aluminum just ships all over all over the place. So they're they're a kind of a core carrier for Rio Tinto. Um, they are now going to be, they're very active right now with the LNG development that's going on in Kitimat. So they're, they're in the sweet spot uh, as that builds out. Um, lots of forestry. Uh, you know, northern BC is lots of timber. And then they've got this great business model where they service, they started with all the servicing all the communities with LTL and uh, and that's a that's a good chunk of their business. So I think LTL is probably it's going to be somewhere around a third of their business. Um, and they just got they got a great network. They just service most of the central and northern part of British Columbia, and they got a, a brand new facility in uh, in uh, Vancouver that I had a chance to be a part of uh, and and look at and see it go up over the last bit. So uh, that really fits in our overall network. Uh, in our LTL site, so I'm really excited about that. That's where I see some good synergy, and then the rest of the stuff they just do a good, they just run a good business. Got it. Now they're gonna, um, with, with the with the development of uh, of uh, of the LNG facility in Kitimat, northeast B, northwest BC is going to experience the same challenges that happen in Alberta called Fort McMurray, and that is you got these massive capital projects that take a lot of people and a lot of capacity and whatever. And then there, there, there's not all that workforce in British Columbia. So they can learn from our experience and draw from us. And then we've got uh, just a great network of equipment and facilities that we can help uh, capture market share. And we kind of have a plan on how to do it. And uh, so uh, we've already started, uh, started down that path of how we can work together more with our existing businesses and we'll just share some of that those capital resources that we've got that were used once in Alberta the BC's the growth platform uh, that's I'm making that call that BC's got a better is, is going to have more capital going in there than the province of Alberta which is more you know Alberta's more heavily uh, weighted to oil BC's heavily weighted to natural gas got it um. And then on the, the dealership side, I think I know the answer to this question, but have you had any interest historically in pursuing like a, a dealership uh, no. business model? No, no, no. no. Well, it, it's, uh, this just came because it's so intertwined. Uh, it's, it's not core uh, to the Mullen Group, but it's core to Banstra. And from that perspective, we'll make sure that, uh, uh, you know, that that part of the business remains uh, a, a, a high focus for for the Banster Group, for sure, and for that for those communities, that 
I mean, they provide a lot of service up there. They're, they're, they've got a big network, one of the largest ones up in the north. And switching gears a bit on the apps acquisition, do you have any updated views on the timing of close or? Uh, it depends on it depends on uh, competition bureau. Um, you know that's a large scale acquisition that uh, is uh, subject to competition bureau re- review, and uh, so the the applications have all been made, and it's up to them just taking a look at it. Uh, and and uh, I don't know if that helps us or hurts us, but uh, there actually is a couple other big acquisitions that uh, are on their desk right now. One's called Rogers and. Uh, and Sean, the other one's uh, CN, maybe CP, and Kansas City Southern. So uh, where we fit in the queue, I'm not exactly sure. Understood. Well, that's all for me. I'll turn it over. But, but we're still, you know, we're plowing ahead. Uh, I don't expect any issue with Competition Bureau, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's just part of it. You have to go through the process, and, and that, that's what will delay the acquisition. That's the only thing. Is just we got to get that we got to get that blessing to consummate the deal. Understood. Uh, thanks for your time. I'll turn it over. You betcha. Thank you. The next question comes from Michael Robertson with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hey. Uh, good morning, gents. Thanks for taking my call. Good morning. Um, just had a, a quick one. I was wondering if you could give us an idea of what kind of progress you're making with respect to uh, alternative vehicles within your fleet, and and if you have any sort of target goals you're looking at further out, perhaps as a rough percentage of the fleet. Like I, I know Gardenwine's done, done done some progress on that front, and you know any extra color would be helpful. Well, Steph is uh, is really active uh, on this ESG file. And uh, he, he's probably better to answer that one than I am. I can tell you, as I said, look, we, we're not in denial. We're moving forward. The, 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 where we see the, the real easy wins is in the local delivery vehicles. Those will migrate towards hybrid or full electric vehicles over this next period of time. And we've already started that, that, those investments, right, Stefan? Uh, yeah, on, no, on the delivery vehicles, absolutely on the EVs or the uh, you know the, what we call sprinter vans. That's well known. We've ordered, we news released last fall the order, uh, and we've just about doubled the order since that time. Um, we're also partnering with some other OEMs on alternative uh, vehicles. Uh, you know, so we're talking heavy trucks now, but we're under confidentiality agreements, so we really can't speak to them. But we're trialing them, and certainly we're going to be on that cutting edge. But you know, have we ordered pure electric vehicles? Not as of yet. We're still going to wait and see on that. But uh, certainly, we're also making investments on uh, other things that save electricity. So whether it's LED lights within our warehouses, those are simple uh, and. Uh, I won't say uh, we've got most of them done now, but we're certainly made a good progress there. And then we're doing things like what we call snow sheds. So a different way of making sure that we're keeping cold freight cold. So these are investments from Canadian companies that we're making into new ways of, of thinking about energy and transportation of temperature controlled goods. Um, so, uh, again, we're working on all aspects. So it's not just vehicles when you think about ESG. It's also your, your footprint, your, your warehouses, your, 
everything from uh, you know water usage, like we're recycling water now uh, to wash our trucks in Alderside. So um, we don't go on a big long thing about ESG, but I can tell you it's in our DNA and has always been in our DNA. And so we get a little frustrated, but uh, be assured that we are trialing uh, the, what you're looking at, which is big vehicles, and we're making strides in other areas as well. Got so it. Michael, uh, just, just, just to summarize, I think that most of the delivery trucks that we see running around in our communities, whether they're going in to deliver consumer goods or just to the regular storefront, but those, those trucks are all going to be hybrids or electric trucks in the future. And we're, we're, making, we're transitioning our fleet to that right now. In the medium haul lane, uh, electric trucks, I, I don't see them quite having that you know that that uh, capabilities yes because uh, the the batteries become too heavy uh, too much of a component so we're 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 looking at uh, these dedicated halls of moving to new uh, CNG uh, LNG uh, kind of opportunities and then on the long haul um, I, I would say there's probably two opportunities there I would say one is hydrogen uh, that's but that's a ways off. But uh, hydrogen is the fuel is a fuel of the future, and then we've invested. For example, with uh, uh, apps, we'll be doing a lot of intermodal, as I say. Which you know that's a that's a you know we won't be investing as many trucks. We'll be just doing intermodal. Then we'll be doing the final mile with uh, with EVs, which is all. Um, more energy efficient and uh, and better for the environment. Less trucks on the road uh, and more efficient. Got it. That's uh, that's helpful, caller. I, I appreciate the ESG angle, but I was you know sort of more curious just as you, you get more of those out there representing a larger portion of your fleet. If uh, you, you know there be a, a sort of longer term, it, a longer term. Tail yeah, I, I would suspect <laughs> that it will. Like all technology, I, I I wouldn't be surprised that it doesn't double every year on our our investments into EVs for for quite a while. And so you know, we're coming we're coming off a very we're coming off a very low level, so don't don't be surprised if we don't double it. Uh, it you know our investments in in uh, EVs of some sort uh, for for uh, for quite a long time. It'll double. It'll just get more and more. Yeah, and and Michael, all our new facilities, like our new facility that we just opened up in Regina, we're all wired up for, although I said we haven't ordered any electric vehicles yet, we are prepared for that eventuality that we have the infrastructure, all that, you know, the lines and, and the power and such going there, so we'll have the grid to charge those at night. And, and do you see that as a longer-term sort of tailwind on the, the, the cost side as well, helping out? I think that's, you, you know what, I'm, I, I I can't see that yet, to be honest with you, Michael. I think that there's, I, like, I don't think there's going to be a, a a perfect win on this. I, I think it's it's uh, it's required and it's just shifting. So I think our electricity and our infrastructure required to do that and uh, all those kinds are going to have a different set of economic drivers to it or cost drivers. Um, and then clearly the offset is is that you don't. Uh, consume diesel fuel, but you're still consuming right. something. Right. I think the net net is, is that you're, you're looking at, the, there is no more free rise that you can 
you can just say, well, uh, my cost is low, but the cost to the world is, or the environment is high. It, it's an all-inclusive look now. Not We just don't stop with us. I think we have to look at all the costs of society, and uh, and I think that's, you know, we're pivoting towards that. I, I would call it neutral, to be honest with you. I think they'll be more expensive, uh, but cheaper to operate. Got it. And Michael, and Michael just um, the carbon taxes announced by the Trudeau government currently is set to go to $170 a ton by the end of the uh, decade. That's 60 cents a liter on diesel fuel. So uh, that'll, you know, that's quite a bit of inflation. So whether it's replaced by electricity, engines, and, and whatever, it's going to be built in there and it's going to go uh, into freight rates and into inflation some way, somehow. But at least we're all in a level playing field when it comes to a carbon tax. Right, right. Okay, well, thanks, thanks for the caller. I'll, uh, I'll turn it back. Thanks, Mike. The next question comes from Kevin Chiang with CIBC. Please go ahead. Hi, th- thanks for taking my question. G- good morning, all of you. Good morning, um, Kevin. If I could ask a question on the LTL front, I, I appreciate uh, some of your earlier comments, uh, Murray, um, about the optimism you have, especially what you see south of the border, and 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 really, it's 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 a reflection of timing and, and vaccination rate momentum. But when you look at your LTL business today, can you give me a sense of, um, you know, I guess the push and pull between volume and yield? Are, are you seeing volume? It sounds like volumes are pretty good, but I'm just wondering if you're seeing any yield pressure just given the change in mix in volumes from, you know, maybe more industrial uh, customers to more consumer customers. I, I think that's, you know, had some, at least when I look at the U.S. LTL players, you know, early in the pandemic, that seemed to have weighed on on their yields a little bit as they transition through through that. Is that something you're seeing as well in your LTL business? I don't think so, Kevin. Um, we, haven't, we haven't seen that. We, we think that the that uh, kind of the, the, the revenue side, as you say, the top line will grow, you know, you know, in line with uh, GDP and consumer spend and whatever. But I think all the upside for us is all in the yield because uh, you're really able to uh, amortize kind of more freight over uh, over your fixed cost facilities and uh, and really fill up fill up to get your yield management on on your vehicles. So those incremental two, three, five shipments, there's virtually very little cost to them. So that's where you get your yield management. Uh, we continue to see expansion in our L, in our uh, in our LTL side, and I suspect that will continue for quite some time as we build out scale and size and and then what we're going to do, you're, you're really having a, uh, a squeeze happening in the facility side, Kevin, in, in LTL particularly as we see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will not take much more demand. You only have to go to every LTL facility in this country and you will see the docks are full. They can't handle much more mm-hmm. uh, in the existing facilities. Most of those existing facilities are, are old within Canada, and they're all in the inner city. And you've seen how the price of real estate's gone up. And so uh, I, I think we're in a, in a pretty good space uh, to get better yield management, and uh, then you just high-grade the kind of quality of freight that comes across your 
your dock. So that's where that's where margin of uh, much margin expansion is going to come from. What freight you put on the dock, uh, and uh, you're going to squeeze out the low margin freight. And Murray, if I can just add to that, yeah. Kevin. Um, sure. So when you look at all the LTL freight that's coming across our desk, you've seen a, a movement towards smaller packages. That's why we've made investments and, and larger investments and accelerated here into sprinter vans, into these hybrid sprinter van vehicles, uh, because they are getting smaller. But you know, when you take the relationship between consumer spending, demographic growth, and GDP, they're all at around zero, right, or just slightly above zero, you've seen our same-store sales were up about 3%. Well, that's because we're not turning down freight. If we were just a traditional LTL trucker and we said we only work with pallets and and, uh, packages that are over 100 pounds, we would have lost that market share. What you're seeing with us, not only within our LTL groups, but also DWS and our uh, our e-commerce logistics warehouses, we're capturing that and we're part of that trend and that's an important growth driver in the future of this company and we're not ignoring it and so murray talked about investments into uh you know technology as well so that's only part of it but the big competitive advantage that we have against most other truckers is that we have such density and such a great network in western canada and i can't accentuate the fact that banster really filled in a piece of that puzzle where now we are ubiquitous from toronto all the way to the coast west coast now and so as we integrate these in and, and get bigger with key and core customers and it's not only uh, you know ltl and e-commerce but that network is irreplaceable that's that, that's that's great color we'll we'll have we'll have with the apps and bastra we have a we we cover virtually every community in canada from Mississauga West, Apps in Southern Ontario, uh, Gardwine in Northern Ontario, Gardwine in Manitoba, Jays in Saskatchewan, Highway 9 in Grimshaw in Alberta and uh, Northwest Territories, and then Banster with our Argus in Interurban and Number 8 Freights in Pacific Coast in uh, Vancouver in BC. So we go right to Vancouver Island. Like it's virtually every community is within our network from Mississauga West. That, that, that's that's definitely a lot of Canada there. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good chunk. Um, you know, and it's 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 all a, it's all a master puzzle. And so we just we haven't done it as one brand. I've done it as strong regional brands. And and the reason is, you just have to go to our terminals and see how our people they they're very passionate about in their communities, and the management teams and the people there. That's their brand and. I tell you, they protect it. They they work hard at it, yeah. and that's the, that's our secret sauce. Culture is important. Um, maybe just on the banter, I, I know you provide a lot of details here. If, if you could remind me or, or, or provide some insight in terms of how you serviced the northern BC market before, was that were you using a third party? Um, you know, partner to to get up there, or were you shipping stuff? Uh, uh, with, with your own asset base, and, and, and if it was the former, just wondering, and you did speak a little bit about it, Murray, in terms of the synergy opportunities, you know, bringing this all in-house potentially, just, just what that means in terms of, uh, you know, potential margin opportunities or, 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 or synergies you can capture now that, um, that you, you directly extend deeper into northern British Columbia. 
So in northern BC, there's really two parts of that puzzle. One is the basic uh, LTL business we're talking about. Well, clearly, just the synergies of having that all in-house and what we can offer the big shippers and clients is, is you know, is just unparalleled. Um, and it's just incremental. Once again, it's just incremental freight uh, in the back of your truck that's going up and on the delivery trucks going out. So we'll just we'll manage that yield. On the on the other trucking, specialized or truckload or whatever, well, we, we could only participate with our existing network so much in northern British Columbia because Banster's was up there. They have a dominant position. Where Banster's needs their help is they have to, to as it gets busier, they need to either make the capital investments or now we can share that capital because we've got that in our group because it's not as busy in Alberta. And then secondly, we've got a, a, a really good workforce that we can transition up there. So we can take advantage of, uh, you know, of those growth opportunities, particularly as it relates to the LNG build-out. That, that, that that, that's going to put added strain in northern British Columbia on the workforce and on the communities. And uh, we'll be able to uh, layer in that. So I see some good synergy there. Um, and then... Just for all of our trucks that uh, you know, we service for the clients, we go in and out. Well, now you, I mean, you got a family member that's up there that can look after your trucks if you have an issue, or you need to lay over, or you need to interline, or do whatever. So, uh, you know, as before, it might have been a little choppy. Now it's kind of all in house. So uh, I don't, I don't see a downside to this one, uh, just mm -hmm. as I don't see a downside to apps. To be honest with you, uh, apps is more consumer product driven. Whereas Banster's uh, a combination of consumer product and, and, and more on the capital side of that business, which has, uh, you know, it's not about critical mass. It's about pricing properly and having the right equipment and people. That, 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 that makes a ton of sense. Those are my two questions. Congrats on getting a couple of big deals done uh, to start the year here. Have a great afternoon, yeah, thanks. guys. Thanks, Kev. Take care. The next question comes from Elias Boskalos with Industrial Alliance Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Good morning, Elias. Um, I've got a number of questions, but I think I'll limit them to, to two, given sort of where we are, um, you know, over the top of the hour. Uh, Murray, you hinted uh, about house prices going up. Um, the Mullen Group has a lot of real estate. So I'm, I'm going to give you maybe a two-pronged question here. Uh, can you talk to us about, you know, your real estate? And I think you valued it uh, a few years back, uh, how that might be performing. And uh, is there any way that you could potentially monetize uh, that, uh, you know, uh, and, and, I, and I don't mean by necessarily by selling it, but, you know, leverage it somehow. Yeah, that's uh, um, you know we in in our in the key markets of, of the Canadian space. I you know it's just the way money's flowing at the moment. But in the key markets, we continue to get even this past week or so unsolicited offers for our facilities that we own in uh, the Toronto, the GTA, and, and Greater Vancouver area. Unsolicited. Uh, big numbers. So what we're seeing in those markets right now 
is uh, industrial space land is going for around upwards of four million dollars an acre right now. Let me let me give you a couple of uh, in Alberta that may be six fifty seven hundred and fifty an acre. In those two markets right at the moment, it's it's parabolic. I well, you can't keep up with it. Uh, so what it, then we say, well, okay, that's good. We've got a embedded derivative within our our, our uh, land and buildings uh, book uh, that's not priced at fair market value. But what do we do with it? Uh, it's it's there. Um, we could get we could raise cash uh, by monetizing those. Uh, but then what do you do? Like I've always said, you can't sell burgers without a burger stand. Well, you can't be in the freight business without terminals. So um, and I think that I think that the, the, the question that we're starting to think about, these numbers have now gone into such a uh, high stratosphere. The question is, do we, uh, you know, is there a way to package, to bundle real estate into a different type of financing arrangement and then, put that into long-term money and, you know, those kind of things. I think we're exploring those kind of ideas. Uh, but I, I would tell you it's, it's really this explosion in pricing has just happened over the last year as interest rates have, uh, has basically gone to zero. So uh, we haven't done anything yet, Elias, but it's certainly on our radar to uh, take a look at that for sure. And if I could just add a little bit more color, you know, so when you're thinking about, interest rates, that's one driver to higher prices. The other is the lack of warehouse space availability. That's another uh, cause of inflation. So when our peers are now bidding and they've just got a, a 30 or 40% rate increase, rent increase, and essentially what happens is the freight rates all have to move up because there's tremendous inflation, not only in warehouse space and real estate generally in those two markets, but also with insurance. Insurance rates are going up substantially. So as we have a competitive advantage, and ultimately those economic rents will be captured by the landlord, which happens to be MT Investments, a wholly owned subsidiary. Or conversely, we're able to capture uh, some of those rate increases on the insurance side because we have superior safety programs. Again, so our rate increases aren't as much. So again, that goes to the house. So uh, there's ways of monetizing, and I'd say it's also a way of leveraging it too. So those inflation uh, bits go back to us. So we, we won't lose out, that's for sure. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that, caller, and it's just something I wanted to, to get more clarity on. I, I think I'll, I'll keep the last question to um, – it's, it's kind of a related question earlier. Um, the, the LTL segment has grown, um, you know, through acquisitions, and it, it's held up quite well. And, uh, you know, stepping back to a bit of, it's not quite this, the one-third uh, LTL, the one-third logistics and warehousing, but I'm not interested in the one-third, one-third. I'm interested in, is there a one-to-one -one relationship between those? And now that you've built out LTL, would you be looking more uh, at organic or inorganic uh, building out the logistics side? Is, is that something that we can maybe think about uh, later in 21 or 22, or is that something that, you know, I'm not an expert in this field that uh, might not occur? Um, I, I think it's going to be a comment. It, it's going to be the, you know, you, you, it's going to be a combination of, of two. We're going to 
we're going to extend our reach by providing a better service, a better technology solution, and a more holistic full mile service to our customers eventually. That that's just we've we've got we're gonna we've got this wonderful LTL network, final mile network to all these communities. And uh, I'm not going to stop just with doing the final mile. We're going to look at, at providing a more holistic service because I think customers are going to want it, going to want that. Uh, so we're positioning ourselves to do that. And then secondly, we'll always add in around and each of our each our regional uh, hubs that we've got in our strong regional brands will always build around and add in that additional capacity. The smaller carriers cannot get the tech, get to the technology scale and sizes that you got to have to be competitive in this new world. Um, but it'll be a combination of both of those things, uh, Elias. And on LTL, I, I, I can just give you some anecdotal evidence of what's going to happen in the LTL business once COVID is over and you add in some additional uh, economic driver into this business in the United States, the big U.S. LTL companies, um, they, they're they're having quarter over quarter increases in tonnage, freight tonnage of five to eight um, percent, and then you have along with that pricing leverage on top of that, and that gives them significant double digit margin improvement. So. Uh, it's going to be an increase in tonnage along with pricing leverage, uh, and that's coming. It, it is only a matter of time, and I am delighted to say we've got one of the largest LTL networks in the country. Delighted to have that as a, one of our core platforms in our company. Um, I then suspect that uh, the trucking logistics side is going to have more freight demand, and pricing leverage is going to follow in the truckload side because we've seen it happen in the U.S. And on the specialized industrial service side, uh, I think it'll hold its own, and uh, it, it won't be as big a part of our company. But I tell you, I see at least two two parts of our business model uh, looking to be very attractive, and we're going to continue to look at adding capacity and size in those two sides. I'm, I'm, I'm aggressive. I'm not worried about the market, uh, not cautious. I'm aggressive, and uh, that's why we announced two pretty good-sized transactions, and uh, we just need to get post-COVID. Okay. Well, both of you, thank you very much uh, for that caller, and I think I'll, I'll end it at that point. Thanks a lot. Take care. The next question comes from Connor Gupta with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, it's a quick follow-up. Uh, sorry, I know the long call has been pretty long here, but I want to be quick uh, on the m and I uh, just wanted to come back to your point, Murray, about uh, you know the housing market analogy that you use. Uh, obviously, we I, I live in the GTA, and uh, there's not a day when uh, there's uh, no uh, bidding war that I hear about. Um, so. Curious as to your thoughts in the M&A space for trucking industry. Uh, what what's the what's the bidding war like? Is there a bidding war? And you often kind of you know uh, a bid against multiple uh, players or so. And uh, secondly, can you uh, help us understand uh, in terms of capital discipline? What's your approach 
uh, to valuation for, for these assets. How do you think about that? Well, I think it's the platform companies, uh, the quality companies that are seeing a nice, uh, a, a nice valuation bump. It's the same as real estate. It's certain markets that are seeing a real bump, but not every market it's, that's seeing the massive bump. No, all of them are going up a little bit, but, but the key markets are just uh, kind of parabolic, and I see the same thing in the, in the uh, acquisition side uh, in our space, in the logistics and warehousing. Quality companies, uh, you've got to pay a premium for, which means that your returns are, you know, on your cash invested are going to be somewhere between 6 to 10% without synergy. And that's why I say to you, synergies are so important because synergies is what drives your, your, your returns from 6 to 10 to 10 to 15 in the short term. It, it, that's what you do. Uh, and then uh, it's the tuck-in ones that you probably uh, have not, you don't see a massive uh, bump in those valuations yet. And you, you're, you're probably driving towards a 10 to 15% return on those. With synergies, it can go up to 15 to 20. That makes sense. Uh, thanks a lot, Mike. Okay, thanks. The last question comes from Jeff Fetterly with Peters and Company. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone. One quick follow-up. Hey, uh, Murray, at the beginning of the call, you reference obviously the strength in the U.S. market, and back in February you talked about how you're in the process of formulating your view and approach to the U.S. Where do things stand today? What's your thinking today? Oh, that friggin' market's so hot right now. You got to you get a little bit scared of it, uh, Jeff. You're buying in at the top, and you know, and those kind of things. So, uh, you know, we're we're looking at opportunities, Jeff. But uh, you, you got to be really. If you think I'm careful looking in the Canadian market, I don't need to tell you how careful I'll be looking at the U.S. market. We're looking at opportunities, but it absolutely has to be the right fit. And, uh, you know, I haven't found it yet, although we look. Uh, but the U.S. market is just, it, it's now on total fire. So you're buying at premium earnings and premium multiples, so I'll be awfully careful. Safe, safe to say that Apples to apples, you're seeing better opportunities in Canada right now. Well, I see, I see better upside opportunity, Jeff, because Canada still is a laggard. Whereas in the U.S., I, I don't know how it gets any better than what it's at right now. That I mean, they're 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 operating at nearly full capacity. Thank you. Appreciate the color on that. Okay. Take care. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Murray K. Mullen for any closing remarks. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, folks. Uh, we're all like you. I, I, you know, I, I know that the future looks really, really bright. At least we feel it. Um, but we got to get through this next bit, and uh, and we all know what the what the challenges are that Canada is facing. So. We'll leave it at that. We look forward to chatting with you in uh, in July, and by that time, I, I fully expect we'll have uh, the apps transaction done and within our company, and uh, and uh, and we'll go from there. So, stay safe, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting again. Thanks for joining us again. Take care.
This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your line. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.